There are no more podcasts left in the valley. Only media monsters. Hello, and welcome to a new episode of Cinephile New Wave on Media Monsters. I am Nick, and as always, I am joined by... John Shane, a.k.a. Duran. Hell yeah. All right, yeah, and today we're going to be discussing Shane, the 1953? 53, right? Yeah. Directed by George Stevens. Yes, sir. Starring uh, Alan Ladd and other people that, uh, you know, you may or may not know. But uh, before we get right into Shane, as always, we need to talk about what we've been watching. So, uh, Duran. I had uh, quite a night of cinema yesterday. I watched Midnight Cowboy for the first time, which was all right. But it was cool because it was introduced by Glenn Frankel, who wrote the book Shooting Midnight Cowboy last year. So he, uh, he signed my copy. Very cool guy. Also watch, rewatch Nice of Kiberia, one of my favorite movies, uh, Fellini. Julieta Messina, maybe the greatest screen performance of all time. Uh, solid contender in my book. And I also watched Hedwood, Hedwig and the Angry Inch. It's like a, a trans musical about a, about a rock star. From, the John from Cameron East Mitchell movie, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, rock star from, from East Berlin comes to America and gets ripped off by her former protege. It's a solid one. And Nick, what have you been watching? I have had a busy week because we, well, because we skipped last week. So quite a few things. Uh, I'll, I'll first start with that. I have finally seen Top Gun Maverick. Yes. <laughs> we yes. did it, boys. Um, We're actually going to rename the podcast to Top Gun Maverick. <laughs> media, media Mavericks. Media Mavericks. <laughs> there you go. I th- I thought it was good. I thought it was um I I kind of came away with the same way you did where it was just like this is kind of a really generic piece of crap movie in terms of like what it's doing with his story. I mean, they don't even name who the enemy is. Yeah. For for financial reasons. Um Is it Iran? Is it China? Is it Russia? Who we'll is it? Know. But it's, you know, it's still like fantastic filmmaking just from all those aerial fights and like god at least it isn't a just slog romance movie like the first one <laughs> yeah yeah um tom cruise and jennifer connelly actually have like some romantic chemistry which is very rare for tom cruise I must say. <laughs> yeah i wonder if it if it helps that they're like kind of the same age right probably yeah. does <laughs> yeah i mean like you know he's like almost 60 at this point so yeah. No point in getting like a twenty-one-year-old to be the. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and and she's like a star from that era too, so it it works especially. Right. But uh, yeah, it's it's uh, <laughs> don't let that that first statement fool you. You should see this if you still haven't seen it, and you probably have because it's the first movie that's made a billion dollars in a bit. But you know, yes, um, yes, the highest-grossing movie of the year, which is um, I mean, very surprising until like until it. December, baby. Of course, until until James Cameron comes from his watery grave, he he arises from his summary, and he's been under for twelve years. <laughs> Absolutely, but other than that, uh, I saw Mad God on Shutter, which was really cool. Phil Tippett made this movie over the course of like thirty years. It's been a passion project where it's just basically a stop motion trip to hell, and it's like absolutely amazing and you're watching this movie for like the artistry so it's going to be hard to like kind of describe anything else about it but you should watch it if you get a chance because it's it's beautiful it gave me like a hard to be a god vibes is that accurate at all kind of i mean yeah i mean it's very like hieronymus bosch as uh tony said in our, our chat it's it's just very like hell imagery so it's it's a lot of that and it's a lot of like you know people in pain and disgusting stuff so yeah, I'd mm-hmm. I'd say hard to be a god is a is a pretty good comparison. And then I I finished a bit of TV. Um, I finished the White Lotus, which I really want to do an episode on. And Reese loves that show, so uh, we're hoping to get Reese back on for that. And it's only six episodes, so maybe you can uh, hop on that too. But we'll <laughs> oh we'll really? See I did it. not know that. Yeah, no, it's okay. It's... Pitch it to me right now, Nick. Pitch it to me. <laughs> the episode, the series, the series. So it's about uh, a group of like i'll call it three groups of people one family one like recently divorced woman and then a newlywed couple and they stay on this hawaiian island 
this Hawaiian Island resort where they um, basically just go through hell. Like they just experience a hell vacation and there's themes of like, you know, capitalism and like, uh, you know, what capitalism has done to Hawaii, what capitalism does to people, greed, just like it's it's a lot of good stuff being worked into like a, a very, very fruitful idea. Um, I'll say it's there's a lot going on. So it's it is hard to kind of explain in one one fell swoop. Gotcha, gotcha. Sounds interesting. Yeah. Other than that, Obi Wan just finished. It was it was fine. It was fine overall. I I I have my gripes with it. I'm I'm sure we'll we'll talk about it more with with Jim once he's back on. But I don't know. I I enjoyed it. It's not the the best, but you know it's a Star Wars series, so it's not going to be. I haven't I haven't watched any of it, but I watched the uh, the Red Letter Media episode about it. Yeah. And yeah, um, it's it's was, functional television. <laughs> I was I was surprised by like how they kept saying that it's like simultaneously this large but a thing but it feels like very cheap at times yeah i mean that's that's kind of been the problem with the disney plus series though is that like they they struggle to show scale when when it really needs to be shown mm. yeah but i don't know it's it functions if you like obi-wan you'll you'll like the show enough and the last thing i want to mention i watched brain dead peter jackson's 1993 horror comedy it's very evil dead very um very interesting to see from from a filmmaker who would go on to do like one of the biggest trilogies ever because <laughs> because it's just it's so low budget it's so like grimy and filthy and and then he moves on to do like the most pristine looking movie you've ever seen in your life with lord of the rings hmm. but um yeah i, that I one's been on it. my list for a while i definitely want to check that one out yeah it's it's really good i really enjoyed it um and, have uh, you watched like any of his other uh i want movies? to i want i want to see like what's the other one it's like the nasties i think it's called and like the frighteners all, all of that kind of like early peter jackson seems like it'd be good movies so i want to i want to see it cool. and uh that's that's about it i mean i could talk about the boys but uh i'm not going to i'm gonna wait until that finishes all right all right all right and now well, for today we watched shane yes we did a, 1953 american technicolor western those are the first six words from the wikipedia page <laughs> and it's about a man named shane who is a gunfighter uh, we don't really know what his deal is exactly we we never really get a sense of his history but based off the fact that whenever he hears something that remotely resembles a gun cocking he immediately turns around and puts his hand on his gun probably shows that he's got a lot of emotional baggage say yes um, and and perhaps the more immediate conflict in the film i'd say is um this dispute between a landowner and the the people on his land uh which shane eventually comes to help these people it's it's interesting the politics of this movie are, are very very interesting to me at least yeah i think that like we talk about this concept of the post-western which are a lot of people say that like the post-western started in like the the like the end of the old hollywood era new uh, in like the beginning of the new hollywood era um, so like late 60s or so but like if if we actually think about it the western has always been reflecting on itself and deconstructing itself ever since it was invented as a genre shane is definitely not the first western to do this at all um there's plenty of westerns from before that that uh could be considered like in the vein of, of like post westerns but it's interesting to see a movie from 53 that goes against what the general idea of a western is to i think most people and maybe some of like film studies that kind of like puts this broad blanket over like what a what like an old western should be because um in this film like it uh this film like really examines what it means to commit violence and the relationship between like violence and and like the west itself yeah that's um that's one thing i found really interesting i want to let's let's get this section out of the way because i know that you don't have a lot to say about it the main reason i kind of like know about this movie at all is from logan um because it's it's very it's a heavy influence on logan it's it is clips of it are shown in logan and even the end kind of monologue is lifted directly from this movie but coming into this, this is kind of like all I knew about it was that like Logan, <laughs> Logan's really inspired by this movie. So yeah, I just want to draw some some interesting parallels that I found. Uh, the first very obvious one being the kind of 
kid and lone wolf dynamic they have going on between Shane and uh, Joey. Joey is the um, son of these two farmers that uh, Shane comes to stay with, and X-23 and Wolverine kind of have the, the same kind of thing where, you know, it's it's Lone Wolf and Cub. The other thing is the old world and new world colliding. Um, Logan takes place in the X-Men timeline. I'm going to speak so much on Logan during this Shane episode, <laughs> but it's, it's fine. I'm going to keep going and then we're going to finish this segment if it kills me. But old world and new world colliding. In Shane, it's it's very much about, you know, the, the people who own the land versus... Uh, you know, the people who are settling on it and the people who own the land are, are in in the argument that this is their land. They they built it out and they, they just sell it to the people who, who come and squat on it, as it were. And, you know, in Logan, it's, it's this old world of mutants dying out to one where there isn't any mutants at all. And then one final thing, it's finding something worth fighting for. The characters of Shane and Logan seem to draw very interesting parallels to each other in that they are figures who do not want to commit violence anymore, but they are forced to because of their situation. And yeah, I, I found those all very interesting, and I really want to watch Logan again because of this movie. Yeah. Yeah, so you mentioned the concept of these these old fighters not wanting to commit violence but being forced to. That That is definitely true, although I think it maybe goes a little bit deeper than that. I think one of the main pieces of the movie is that this, like, violence has become such, like, a part of, yeah, of like, it's Shane. Eventually, at like, the end, unable... it is, you know, it is part of him. He cannot let this go. And, you know, the same can kind of be said for, for Logan. But, yeah, it's... it This whole kind of idea about, uh, like, not being able to let a killing go. What's what's the line? It's, um, you know, there's no living with a killing. What's that from? Is that from this movie? It's <laughs> Yeah, that's from this movie. <laughs> oh, nice. That's a cool line. Yeah. I forgot about that one. Yeah, I think that the... I think that the, the relationship between violence and the Western is especially interesting because, like, like violence is kind of, like, it's necessary for the Western genre. It's, like, so, like, the, the Western genre is so, like, baked in violence. And specifically, it's... There's this dichotomy between justified violence and unjustified violence. So, like, the the hero uses violence in a controlled manner to do good for, like, most Western films. Whereas the villain is defined by a person who uses kind of uncontrolled violence. So, kind of, like, random or violence directed for, like, innocent people for no reason. Um, that the hero then must use his controlled violence to, to stop. And Shane kind of like puts this idea into question. There's the there's that scene where Shane teaches Joey, who's like a little kid, to start shooting, and the mom stops him from from doing so because she says that if there was like no guns in the valley, then this this the world would be like much safer. So it kind of like questions this idea that you can be this good figure. Even if you're completely yeah. well-meaning, if you if you use violence in any way, yeah. And I mean, I, I think... Shane Shane has an interesting retort in within that, which is you know, a gun is a tool, which yeah is you know, it's true. It's you know, a a gun is you know, you know, either a good thing or a bad thing in the hands of good guys or bad guys in quotation marks. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, I think there's a little bit of truth in in both of those ideas. I mean, obviously, there would be less. Um, violence and killing if there were no guns whatsoever but also there was a possibility for it to like do some good with the gun if you're protecting innocent people however even in like the the circumstance in which a person is like completely morally justified in using a gun for like protective reasons that that's still gonna leave some kind of like emotional scar on them so like and i think that this is what's happened to shane i mean we like we don't really know if Shane used his gun for evil or good, the reality is it's probably somewhere in between. There really is no such thing as, you know, I mean, violent for like purely good or evil reasons. Yeah, I mean, it's it's worth mentioning who who the the good quote and and bad quote sides are of this conflict because, as it turns out, we are rooting for Confederates. Yeah, but I mean that's pretty much every western yeah yeah it is that's uh, true yeah. although are we actually rooting for confederates because i know i think that the well, it's, um, it's alabama in particular i know that they say i, well, I, I believe there's like, they were there's like a 
there's a few characters that invoke like the the northern north and south divisions throughout the yeah one of the settlers is named like stonewall i think right he's like directly an ex-confederate and then like the 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 gunslinger that they hire jack wilson yeah Yeah, he's you know he's referred to as like yankee jack or something Mm -hmm. yeah so the it's definitely there and the conflict is is for sure there for sure yeah um and i think that like it makes sense for Jack Wilson to be the bad guy and a Yankee because Riker, who's um, the man who owns all the land of the territory, hires him to get rid of all of the uh, all the squatters. And so you have like this like very, very like classic stereotype of the Yankee coming from the east and like carpetbagging and, and kicking out all like the, the, the Southerners who have like lived there all their lives so you know like invoking these um these i mean very real tensions that were still being felt at the time but you know go back uh, hundreds of years yeah and and it's it is interesting the kind of like you know industrialist parallels that it, it kind of not industrialism but like you know this one guy owning all of the land it's you know something that is still in fact a problem today yeah i think um it's interesting though because i remember Something that that Joe Starrett says to Riker that the law is actually on on Starrett's side. So I think that what Riker did was that he was the first he was part of like the first group of people to like to like quote unquote like civilize the land. And like Yeah. Uh, I mean he course, mentions like, that thing about how like, you know, he, he cultivated it, he he plowed it, you know, mm-hmm. before all of them arrived. Right. But I think that legally speaking he technically does not actually own that land. Yeah. Um, since the, the 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 American government pushed for a lot of people to move to the West, and they could they could basically just like take any any land they wanted to and and have like a legal claim on it, which I assume is what Starrett did because he refers to like his plot of land as his claim. I think more than once throughout the movie. So so really like Riker is is the one that's that's in the wrong here. Uh, at least legally speaking yeah i think that a certain amount of the situation is also left intentionally vague since what's what's i think more important is the uh the moral quandaries about what's going on here yeah and the the you know the violent end and that that this finally gets to right but yeah this this movie's use of violence is is very interesting you you mentioned before we started recording the the bar scene yeah What, what i found really interesting about it was just like how how long it goes for and the brutality of the scene of course you know this movie is from 70 years ago so it's not gonna look particularly brutal compared to movies today but i think for the time it was it was pretty brutal there's there's scenes where shane is beating men when he's down there's scenes when like you can see all this like blood on on the people's faces, which wasn't a thing, which wasn't very common back then for like Western brawls. And just like the the length of it is is what really stood out to me. The fact that there's like no music for any of it, um, so there's no like sense of hero- heroism. And it's only when Joe Starrett steps in does like the music come come up. And I I didn't really know what to think of that because like this this heroic music starts playing when tries to like save shane did you have any thoughts about it i i didn't realize that the music came in with with star it yeah yeah that's like really like heroic music starts playing yeah well it's 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 interesting because you know they do try and kind of like paint him as as this ultimately a good guy but but at the same time there there are definite shades of of gray within the character of shane and and his intentions and what he's trying to do an interesting comparison i found was um not specifically to this this bar fight, but the fight between Shane and Starrett reminds me of They Live. There's a famous fight in They Live that goes on for like seven minutes or something, and it's it's just two characters beating the crap out of each other. And the message behind it in They Live is that like you know these uh, there's so much like class in struggle that they can't rise up and and fight the 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 greater fight, which kind of reflects on on this a little bit. It's it's that same sort of idea of there's this guy who wants to help and, you know, he's trying to help a good cause, but ultimately he, he knows he can't let these people who are non-fighters fight because 
violence just begets more violence and he's trying to stop that it's it is a little different now that i'm thinking that completely out but but still yeah yeah also like i think he just yeah he wants to he thinks that his life is doomed anyway since he's already a gunslinger and so he might as well use his gunslinging for good rather than have somebody else be infected with uh like the poison of violence yeah um yeah really quick to go back to the bar scene sure. something i something i noticed was i'm pretty sure that shane was the one to instigate the violence against the Riker gang yeah um, well in, re in response to like Riker or one of the Riker's men like pouring like whiskey on him and I mean, like he, uh, he just did the same thing twice though so <laughs> He he, right. he said, "I'll buy you a double," and then poured also, two drinks on him. Right, right, of course. But also before that, remember the 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 little kid uh, Joey returns the glass bottle that Shane bought his soda from, and Joey was gonna bring the glass bottle to the barkeeper, but instead Shane took the glass bottle and said, "I'll I'll bring it to the to the bar anyway." Yeah, there's this um, definite sense of like Shane is trying to to prove himself again after he got kind of humiliated that first time by yeah. by doing this yeah it's interesting because he's i i don't know exactly who he's trying to prove himself to i think um if i were to guess the person I'd he wants to prove himself joey. the most yeah is, is joey because joey like is is placing him on this very like idealistic pedestal joey like they've used him as this this like incredible hero even though like he doesn't really know him very well so I think Joey was the most disappointed when when Shane didn't stand up for himself a few times and like almost beat him to be as a coward. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, there are all those scenes of him just being like, "There's no way Shane would have stand down from a fight. He's he's a he's a badass." <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. my god, I wanna. I get it. He's a kid in the 1950s trying to act, but like, my god. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even think he did a bad job necessarily. I think they gave him way too much dialogue for no reason. Yeah, yeah, he. <laughs> but like that is a core relationship of of this movie is like, and and that's something else I want to kind of get into is like this this idolization Joey has for Shane and what he does, and there's obvious parallels between like how we glorify violence to children, but. Mm. It's just this interesting idea of, like, he clearly does not want to be idolized by this kid in certain scenes. But there's there's also this thing where he's egging himself on. And that's especially apparent in, in the uh, the scene where he teaches him to shoot. He, he kind of puts it off for a lot of the movie. And then he's finally like, all right, I will, I will teach you to shoot. And that leads to that line, you know, a gun is a tool, which yeah, you know, it, it all it all ties in. It's it's good. Yeah, I think a big reason why this movie works so well is because of Alan Ladd's very ambivalent performance throughout. He has this kind of like blank expression on his face for for most of the movie, and it's it's very difficult to tell what his intentions actually are beyond just wanting to help Joe Sarrett and maybe try to put his gunfighting abilities to rest. Uh, because there's yeah there's a lot of like you mentioned contradictions between what he wants to do at times but yeah i think that it would be interesting to talk about the kid a little bit joey yeah. so joey starts out he's like one of the first characters we see in the movie if not i think he's the first i think yeah no i think he right? is the first he's he's yeah. we see him aiming down a gun at like a deer or something right right and we only find out much later that the gun isn't loaded but it's interesting to see like this you know six-year-old kid holding this this huge real rifle and i think that the, that imagery is is very deliberate because a lot of this movie is also about how violence gets passed on throughout through generations right so like joey's mom doesn't want joey to learn gunslinging and as far as I'm aware, Joey's dad doesn't really want to, like, put bullets in Joey's gun and teach him about shooting and that kind of thing. At the same time, though, there's a contradiction because they they give him that gun to play around with. <laughs> yeah, it's it's sort of like this, I, I hope you don't ever have to use this, but here it is kind of feeling. Yeah, which, of course, um, will just make this young kid more curious about it. Yeah. And so when when Shane comes in, I think one of the main reasons why he idolizes Shane is because here's this example of this man who who uses violence to get his way. And there's like something very, very attractive for for like a young boy in that, I think. I mean, like, there's there's something very attractive in that kind of uh, masculinity. Yeah. 
Yeah, that that whole kind of relationship that they have is is very kind of interesting. Just the way that this kid like just completely like head over heels for this this absolute stranger coming into his life, and he's he's only really made it worse. Like like bad things have happened ever since he came into town, and yet he's still kind of like, oh my god, this guy's so great, he can he can kill all the bad guys. Which yeah. Yeah, it's I'm 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 stuck on that that point about just, you know, violence and children and and how it gets presented and like so much of this movie is just about this kid just absolutely like loving this guy who mm-hmm. who doesn't want to be what he what he is, I think. I don't know. That's that's what I think in the end, but you're you're kind of right when you say that it's 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 gray more than anything else. Yeah, that the concept of uh, hereditary violence is is pretty interesting. By the end, we the the kid like sees Shane shoot all the bad guys and essentially win. So like I don't I don't think that like he's discouraged from from performing violence at all. Yeah, but he's not he's not happy about it either. Like what do you mean? I like once he's done it in the end and he he somberly kind of rides his horse into the sunset. Like I don't think he's like he didn't want it to come to this. Oh no, Shane didn't want it to come to this, but the kid is I think, oh, happy. Well, yeah, um, that he saw it all happen. Yeah. So I think that the the kid will go on to idealize violence and maybe take the same path that Shane did and become a gunslinger. Yeah. I have a quote from from Sam Peckinpah that I I'd, I'd like mm-hmm. to uh, add about about the violence. Uh, he ahead. said of the movie, when Jack Palance shot Elisha Cook Jr. in Shane, things started to change. <laughs> and I, I think he's right. Because the the amount of force that that bullet has is unlike anything movies had seen up to that point. Like movies in the fifties weren't like tugging people on wires when when they got shot, but this is like that happens during during the particular scene that they're talking about, and it's 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 palpable. Like you can you can tell the force of that gun is just so much, and I oh, th- yeah, I think that sure. that adds to um you know the depiction of violence and and. There's also a lot of blood. Like there's there is quite a bit of blood for for a movie from this era. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely agree there. I think also that that scene where Jet, Jack Wilson shoots um, Stonewall. Stonewall. Yeah, I I feel like I've seen that scene repeated or, or referenced like a million times in westerns to come afterwards. Just like the the strange rules about like who's drawing and who's shooting and the kind of like ambiguity surrounding that yeah right like so like jack jack wilson very clearly agitates uh eggs on stonewall to to like draw on him and stonewall draws but for some reason jack wilson doesn't shoot him and in that moment stonewall like realizes that he's he's messed up and that he's dead because now, yeah, legally, legally speaking, Jack Wilson can kill him. That little beat and that I, happens is so interesting. Yeah, it's really cool. I really like that. It reminded me a lot of that that scene in McCabe and Mrs. Miller, where that young kid gets like shot on the bridge. Because, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Because like that that other kid is like, hey, hey, show me your gun. Like, show me how cool it is. And the kid's like, all right. And he pulls his gun out of his holster, holster and that other kid just shoots him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, something you mentioned earlier that I'd like to go back to the the fact that like Shane arriving just makes everything worse. Yes, I found that to be uh, to be very interesting because yeah. like I think I think that the that the Riker gang would have eventually trampled over all of the squatters anyway, but Shane's arrival makes that process a lot quicker. <laughs> and like he he tries so hard not to start shit, but then you know. He comes in, he gets called Sody Pop, and, and, you know, the gloves come off. I, don't, I wouldn't even say he tries hard not to start shit. Like, there's one scene in which he shows restraint, which is when he initially goes into the bar, and he, he doesn't um, fight back when he gets, like, insulted and spat upon and drink spilled upon, etc. But immediately, like, the, the next possible opportunity he has, he just goes and instigates all that violence. Well, there... When does the scene where he just kind of like looks on as as Wilson Wilson and Riker kind of ride up and are just like, "Hey, the other guy left. Now, now you ought to be getting out of here," because like he's he's very much an observer in many in many instances where he could be starting something. It's true. Yeah, there are there are definitely a lot of instances in which he can start things, but I, I would say that he's 
pretty much the sole reason for the increasing brutality of the Riker gang due to that like bar fight. Yeah. What and a... I think that like a part of that is because um the movie is talking about how he has this inner violence that despite his own intentions, despite what he wants, he can never really get rid of. Yeah. One of the things that kind of stood out to me is is um this is about three years before this movie comes out, but the the Going back to the ending, we're jumping all over the place. But the ending of this kind of reminded me of The Searchers. Did you get that feeling too? In which way? About this, like, in the in the sense that there's this, like, figure of the West being left behind. And there's clearly this kind of, mm. this idea of, like, this new world where there doesn't have to be all this violence. But it was achieved through the violence of these figures. Yeah, I don't know. I I found that yeah. kind of interesting how how Shane and um John Wayne in that movie, I can't remember what the hell his name is, but um his name is John Wayne. His Listen. name is John Wayne. It is. <laughs> but yeah. That is that is interesting. Yeah. Um I didn't really think about that until you brought it up. Though I think that it's definitely more explicit in the searchers as like John Wayne um, For sure. I mean liter- literally yeah, they, they like, literally close the door on him. Right. He's like unable to enter the house. He's unable to enter quote unquote civilized life, right? Yeah. Um, but also, I think in in Shane, it's a little bit more ambiguous, not to discount what you said, but like like in The Searchers, the good outcome is achieved through violence. But I don't really think that it's saying that the era of the gunslinger is over, especially because we have Joey in that scene with Shane, who like idolizes Shane. And I think my opinion is that him witnessing that that final gun, gunfight with Shane just further makes him want to become a gunfighter himself. Yeah. And but, but there is there is definitely that contrast though between Shane's violence and the uh, like the homestead lifestyle for sure. Yeah. I guess the the main difference is that like John Wayne, he there's like kind of remorse, but I I feel I don't know. I I feel like Shane has a lot of remorse for for his actions and like the way his life turned out as a gunslinger i definitely agree yeah Um, but we should we should definitely talk a little bit more about the ending because i found it very very fascinating i think the implication and we talked about this a bit in the in the pre-show is that shane is killed since joey notices that shane has got some blood meaning that he was hit and he just kind of like rides off into the sunset and we don't really, yeah. really see his face. We don't really know what's going to happen. Um, and as, you know, Joey's final cries of, like, Shane, don't leave. Yeah. At the same time, though, it can be kind of like a Sopranos-type ending, where even if Shane, like, lives to see another day, I think the implication is that... Eventually um, there will be another conflict that he has to fight, and he, he will die eventually. Yeah, and also, like, Shane knows that his days are numbered. He's, he said that, like, a few times throughout the movie, that... um there's really like nothing that he can do to prevent his violent death, um, even if he tries his best and attempts to become a ranch hand like he does in the movie. He's a very interesting character. I haven't watched a lot of westerns from this time, but at least from the westerns I've watched, he's um, he's he's among the most interesting characters that I've yeah, seen. Yeah, the most familiarity I have with westerns from this period are the Anthony Mann and James Stewart westerns from... Um, they're a little bit later than this. I think they're from like 52 to like 57 or, or something like that. But the, the main difference there is that there's a lot of psychology in those Anthony Mann Westerns. In fact, one of his Westerns without John Stewart called The Furies, uh, which was in 1950, I think, was called like a Freudian Western, which is kind of interesting. Huh. Whereas in this film, of course, like the character of Shane has some interesting psychology, but we get absolutely zero sense of his interiority throughout the film yeah you really it's really hard to read him yeah um and and like that in addition to that like we don't know anything about his past either the ambiguity just helps so much with making him so so interesting just because like you know so many westerns of this time are just so kind of black and white good and evil (laughs) i think that good character I, I i think that um yeah alan ladd's performance is what like makes or breaks this role here since for sure um He's like this very like, as I mentioned before, very like stoic facial expression throughout the whole movie, and he he never really emotes like at all. The most like, he barely. emotes is is when he's like about to pull his gun. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. The only time he ever seems like on edge is when he thinks that someone's cocking a gun behind him, <laughs> yeah. which you know, to be fair, makes sense. 
but yeah, he he doesn't really seem to show any emotion. We know that like he he shows some emotion and the way that he cares for the Starit clan, but he doesn't really seem to act any emotion like at all. Yeah, and I think let's, that's, that's very intentional. Let's spend a little time with that. It is interesting the bit where like he kind of gets so ingrained with this family that he like becomes surrogate dad for like a hot second during especially mm-hmm. during that dance where he starts like dancing with the wife and like you know the kid the kid already loves right. him at that point and but there's this this sense of like this is this is the life i could have if if i could just put this violence behind me right right um i think there's definitely like an implication that he's kind of like like you said like usurping the the father role like the that scene where he's dancing with with the wife what's his name joe jo, jo it's like yeah behind a fence looking at them yeah he's like like you know he's like this like boundary in front of them it's kind of interesting and i remember at the end of the movie when shane tells miriam the wife that he's gonna go and kill the Riker gang she says are you are you doing this like out of love for me or something like that i i think i missed that i don't, I don't know if she says specifically out of love for me but i think that's like the implication yeah she says like oh are you doing this for me and then he says shane says no i'm doing this because I, cause I love, like, Joey, and I love I love Joe, too. It's not it's not just for you. Yeah. Which is kind of kind of interesting. I'm not, I'm not so sure about that, Shane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's... So, the, the ideas of, like, family in this are, are, are very, 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 very interesting. Yeah, I'm, I mean... I'm having even, trouble, like, articulating everything I want to say about it, but, like... Um, well, even, even Joey asks his mom, like, mom is it is it okay that i love shane as much as i love mom and you and dad so much so much about like father figures and like role models and the people we look up to are are kind of implicated by joey being in this movie and Mm -hmm. i i i want to bring it back to the the fact that the music comes in when joe starts fighting i i find that very interesting because that that would almost imply that like you know this gray that they're trying to keep shane in like there's no music for him but like Mm-hmm. They're trying as hard as they can to make Joe Starrett seem like, you know, he is the real hero of this. You know, he's he's the one leading this fight, wanting to do the right thing and, like, sticking up for, for all the land. You know, he, he even organizes the meeting where, where they all kind of say, like, hey, we're staying. Meanwhile, you know, Shane, during that time, had, had been, you know, made to look like a fool during the during the bar scene, the first bar scene. Right. I think that's a really interesting point, because I think that if this were a typical Western, the morality structure would be completely around Joe's, like, moral compass, his his uh, personal morality. But it's a little bit gray with, with Shane in the picture, because remember, at the end of the movie, um, Shane stops Joe from going to kill, like, the Riker gang. And because, like, Joe's, Joe's morality is a very kind of typical good guy like american libertarian type like morality like you know i have my i have my family and i care about my family and like i don't want to do violence unless i have to that kind of thing he's very much like a yeah he he very much wants to do the right thing at all times and but he has those moments of like you know what if i just used a little bit of violence this would all be over Mm -hmm. um and also the the problem is that like by by his like very kind of strict code he's gonna be faced with a lot of problems he won't be able to solve and like like for example um when the Riker gang's gonna like come and massacre him and his family so like the the music playing in that scene might be kind of like the the movie tricking you in a way to view joe as the moral center and i think that for also a lot of the movie shane is attempting to draw his own morality from joe i mean he places joe it's kind of like more than his employer, more than a friend, really. It's kind of like a, I don't know, like almost a yeah, it like, like they, leader. They like become or something like that. yeah, they be they like start this relationship like they've been like friends for years. <laughs> it's, yeah, but it's but like even more than that, like I think that he views Joe as like above him and starts to like draw yeah, his own morality yeah. like from Joe until Joe's morality fails cannot him. solve yeah yeah it cannot solve the the problem that they're that they're in yeah oh interesting okay yeah i wasn't really thinking about that and i think a part of that is because um he wants that homestead lifestyle um, yeah like deep in his heart and so he thinks that okay if i just like follow this guy who's got it all figured out at least you know that's what he thinks 
then then maybe I'll be able to, to truly live this lifestyle. Yeah, interesting. I don't know what else to say. All right, all right. I, I don't know either. I think that's a, <laughs> Sounds that's a good, good good point to uh, to end on. That's uh, that's that's how you end a podcast is when you run out of things to say. <laughs> yeah. All right. Enough of these gray Western her- heroes, gray Western characters. I mean, like, who's got time for ambivalence? It's time to talk about a real hero. Real heroes a real... are what we need right now. Exactly, exactly. A real black and white hero. Nothing, no no baggage at all. <laughs> no baggage at all. He's, he's morally correct in everything he's done. Never, right. <laughs> never done it. Anyway, we're, we're, we're talking about Top Gun reaching a billion dollars. This will be the last time we talk about Top Gun on the podcast. That's a lie. We're, we're going to mention it every single episode. <laughs> we're doing it specifically for our, our, our top fan, Reese. Shout out to Reese. How you doing? Shout out, Reese. We'd, um, we'd love to have you back on, buddy. Yes, come on soon. Come on soon. What I found really interesting about this whole Top Gun thing is that it spawned this kind of, like, mini culture war within, like, cinephile communities between what they referred to as, like, the last real blockbuster Top Gun, um, which is notable for, you know, not over-utilizing the CGI, having a lot of real stunts, all the all the planes being real, that kind of thing, compared to yeah. uh, well, the way that most blockbusters so are done I need nowadays. to ask, was it all shots, or was it just some shots? Because I gotta assume some of those shots were CGI. I don't think that there was zero CGI used in the movie, but I think that um, for this, like, culture war reason, um, the, 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 like, the, the dichotomy there is between this... Yeah, yeah. Just between, you know, CGI-heavy Marvel movies and, like, using any bit of real footage for anything, yeah. capturing in camera for, for Top Gun. Yeah, and I think it's in- interesting that um, I, 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 for one, did not expect this this movie to be the amount, the, the big success that it, that it was. I mean, it's, like, the first movie to make a billion dollars this year, right? And how much did... No, I don't think Batman made that much. It made a good amount, but I think it... It was like nowhere close to Top Gun, yeah. And it's, uh, I mean, I mean, Tom Cruise really, uh, he he won that gamble, you know, having this movie supposed to come out like two, yeah. almost oh my three God. years ago, <laughs> yeah, and then and then waiting through the pandemic, um, not allowing it to be released on streaming or anything like that. Was this? And then boom, was makes the original date make, makes a billion dollars? Was the original date in twenty twenty? Pretty sure that I was. It, it might have been. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think I think it was like. A couple months after the the, the wait for this began. was so long. Yeah, I mean, I remember seeing trailers like at least two years ago, if not more. Yeah, yeah. Which oh, it that which makes it all the more interesting that this final product has done so well. Exactly. It's it really does feel like the end of some kind of era, and I think we talked a little bit about it. Yeah. About how like there's that kind of like meta commentary in that movie. Yeah, I mean, about... you you got the chance to talk about it. Um, mm-hmm. I hadn't seen it yet, but yeah, I, I definitely felt that when I was watching, and it kind of, you know, it, it definitely influenced how I was reading the film, just kind of going in knowing that this is like, you know, lock, last blockbuster. The whole opening scene just being like Tom Cruise going Mach 10 and a half and then just yeah. being like, yeah, this is my day. I may die one day, but I still have today exactly exactly that's, that's the movie industry baby <laughs> yeah um so so i wonder if like the the huge response to this is kind of like a fluke thing um which i think that you know you could make the argument for or maybe like hollywood might want to take another look at doing movies with less cgi with um yeah. more like real stunts the kind of like Tom Cruise style. I think the the main factor for that though, like, is Tom Cruise. A lot of people have uh, been saying maybe. that. I mean, he's, a lot of people have been saying he's kind of like the um, the actor as auteur, and I'm not sure how much I totally buy that, but I do definitely think that like he was the primary creative agent for this film. Oh yeah, for sure. Like I, so many people got their names attached to this movie at the end that like. It it's 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 weird enough that like Tom Cruise's name kind of rises above everybody else's because like Christopher McQuarrie worked on this, Joseph Kaczynski, uh, Jerry Bruckheimer, and then like all the names attached to it. But it's like it's nothing without Tom Cruise. Yep, he's yeah. uh, the last movie star. He is. 
I I am wondering how Furiosa if if that's also going to be very not CGI heavy because I know Fury Road was not very CGI heavy, and I wonder like what this will lead to, because if if these two movies do very well and they're like hey you know what if you tried filming something in camera for once you <laughs> you bastards <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Like, like, what is that going to do to the film industry that's relied so heavily and has just like, kind of like, I, I don't, I don't want to say tanked, but like, you know, what they've done to the CGI market where it's just, you know, you, you pump and dump a lot of money and just make people work tons of hours for something mm-hmm. that could potentially be done for real. Yeah. Also like ununionized hours. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, like their their exploitation of of the VX, the VFX industry has been very very bad in recent years. Yeah. Um, but honestly, though, if, I, if I'm being totally real, I don't think that this will lead to a a huge change in the way that movies are being made right now. I do think yeah, that. I like, mean, there's there's got to be a few examples before I think they kind of you know catch on and realize like people want to see real things. Well, I think I think it's more of like um like the last breath of of like the old models and i definitely think that like maybe there might be like a small resurgence of like non-cgi heavy blockbusters in the future um furiosa as you mentioned would be a good example of that um will it lead to a larger trend i'm i'm not so sure though it's definitely significant that it made a billion dollars and it's currently the highest grossing movie of the year yeah one one interesting thing i didn't even see jurassic world dominion but i know that I guess this is like the most animatronic heavy Jurassic Park entry since like the 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 first one I think mm. which you know you know the quality of those movies aside that's that is kind of interesting that they're like yeah we can't really achieve all that we want to achieve with CGI so we're going to need to build these these puppets the thing is that's like yeah it's it's weird which movies use CGI and which don't cuz a lot of the time, like, a lot of this stuff can be done in camera, and they're just not doing that. So, it, like, like you can't do a lot of the stuff in a Marvel movie in, in real unless you do, like, I don't know, miniatures for, like, buildings toppling over. That's for sure. So, it, yeah, it just, it, it leaves it in a weird place where I do think that there is, there is a hankering for, for, you know, non-CGI, completely practical movies, and we have kind of seen that in, like, I don't know. I, you know, other than Jurassic World and then Top Gun, I, I, there's not a lot that comes to mind, but um, definitely not in recent memory. I think I think it's more of just this this general feeling where it, whether or not it, it translates into, into like like a a real market is a different question, though. Yeah. In the case of Top Gun, though, definitely did. Yeah. I mean, uh, the Hollywood um, accountants can also say that the reason why this movie succeeded so well is because of all the all the dads. That showed up for this film. Yeah, all the dads that are sick of Marvel. Well, uh, that never watch Marvel. Interesting you know? thing is like, uh, so like Lightyear's not been doing very well, and I guess I didn't realize this. The the market or one of the markets that's like not returned to cinemas a whole lot is families. So all of these, you know, a lot of like dad movies are making a lot of money right now. Like you know. Mm-hmm. I, I don't want to call Marvel dad movies, but like, you know, they, they definitely appeal to like 30 or 40 year old dads just because they are, they are what they are. They're mass appeal movies, but. And fathers too. <laughs> fathers too. <laughs> <laughs> I was looking at like the, the highest grossing movies on, of 2022 and like that was, it was on the list. Really? I mean, it made like $20 million, but. It was technically on the list. That's so weird. <laughs> you, would you call is the Batman a dad movie? It could be, I guess. I don't know. I feel like I feel like um, superhero movies in general, and specifically like Marvel movies, kind of transcend the. Um, yeah, there's the so whole, like, mass movie. appeal that it's like yeah. Yeah, I, I would say that it's more like eighteen to thirty-five or whatever that like demographic. Yeah, that's yeah, that's probably a good way to put it. Cause yeah, from from what I had read, it was um like the eighteen to to thirty five range was was kind of the the people that have most returned to theaters since uh, since closure. Right. A lot of people sense. haven't seen like more than one movie since theaters have reopened, which um oh, that that sucks. That's disheartening. But um, we'll we'll continue on. 
I mean, it makes sense because you don't really need to go to the theater anymore, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, I, I love going to theater. I've I've gone... I can actually... You know what? I'm going to give you the exact number of times I've gone to the theater <laughs> since COVID right now. All right. I've gone 137 times since since COVID, uh, since the lockdowns. How do you, how do you know this? Because <laughs> I tagged all um, my movies I saw in the theater by uh, theater on Letterboxd. And I, start, I only started doing that after uh, after COVID. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I wonder. Um, yeah, I couldn't do that as easily, so I'm not gonna try right now. But you know, probably probably not as much as you, because you like live at the AFI. But um, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, it's there. it's been interesting to see kind of like who comes into a movie with you nowadays. Like, what what is the feel of the crowd like? Yeah, um, I feel like a lot of for a lot of like younger people, especially like they don't they don't really care because like you can just you know, they can watch a movie whenever they want to on whatever device they want. Why would they go to a theater? Yeah. Um, and sure, like you, like, you have to wait, like, a month or whatever for a movie to come on streaming. But, like, you know, it'll be on Netflix in a month. Yeah, yeah. that's And, and until that time, you have literally thousands of terrible shows to watch on your phone. Yeah, and that's that's kind of the crazy thing about, like, the Marvel movies right now is, like, they all come, like, 45 days afterwards on Disney+, Plus and, like, they're still making shit tons of money. Yeah, yeah, those are, are like, one of the biggest theater draws. Well, I'm sorry, the biggest theater draw, at least in America right now. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see what the legacy of Top Gun Maverick will be on the film industry. It's, uh, it's, it's going to be a... We're going to get Top Gun 3, 4, 5, and 6 all filming back-to-back. -back. Well, that is if... Um, the entire movie takes place in the cockpit. You're never that, out of it. That is only if uh, Tom Cruise doesn't kill himself making Mission Impossible 8. Yeah, uh, is it? No, he's only filmed the seventh one, right? So I, I, I guess that. there's still a chance that Tom Cruise will just snap his neck somehow, making the next one. Man is is 59 years old. Um, I I forget he told me this, but but one of my my friend's theories is that like he is trying to kill himself on every single movie, but he just is unable to. So he just like it, it keeps getting like crazier and crazier, and like. Definitely, definitely doesn't have anything to do with the amount of money he's making. Oh, of course not. For bigger uh, stunts. <laughs> and and eventually, like when he does kill himself making a movie, that movie will make like twenty billion dollars. That's you know what that's, that's gonna true. be like the legacy movie. That's yeah. true. He's gonna he's gonna have a a, a Brandon Lee Crow moment. Exactly. <laughs> that's a is that a horrible thing to say? It might be. I'm sorry to Brandon Lee. <laughs> if, if if so. <laughs> Well, I don't think he can hear you. Uh, well, <laughs> we're just making this worse. We better move on. <laughs> Thanks for listening. <laughs> Thank you for listening, everybody. Have a have a great night. <laughs> <laughs>